0: Welcome to Emmanuel Baptist this morning. Uh, Things look a little bit differently. There's a bit of a strange set of circumstances for us this morning. Uh, But we still want to stay true to what we believe. And we want to be able to worship together as a church family. And so we're going to do that through video this morning. In a minute, uh, Pastor Don is going to come and bring uh, the Word of God for us. And so uh, our prayer this morning is that you are encouraged Um, In a time like this, uh, fear and anxiety and concern and unknown can creep in, uh, but we know that we serve a sovereign God. Uh, We see it all through scripture and all through our lives, we can point to moments where God has been in control, and so we can rest in that fact, Uh, and we're going to pray in a moment, but just want to draw your attention to a couple things. Um, Just so you are aware, the board is actually going to be meeting on Tuesday evening for our normal board meeting, but in that, we are going to have some time for discussion and some decision-making moving forward in the next few weeks uh, as to what church ministry looks like and church family looks like, so you can stay tuned to hear some of that information, Um, the way that you're going to stay tuned is a few different ways. You can check out our website, uh, you will receive emails, and you can look on Facebook as well. But the best way will be through email. And so if you're not already on our email list, you can subscribe by going to emmanuelvernon.ca. And under the tab on the front page, about, you click about, and then after you're in there, you go to sign up for email or email sign up, and then you can follow the process from there, and you will be informed uh, weekly and if not daily uh, from our offered office administration. So in a moment, we're going to we're gonna pray for a few things, and I'm going to read a little bit of scripture before we carry on with our service this morning, uh, but just some things to be uh, aware of as we pray just around um the virus and our church family church family uh we want to be praying for each other i think just that we remain focused on the gospel focused on who jesus is uh remembering where our peace and strength comes from Uh, we're going to be praying this morning for those in our church who are maybe more susceptible to getting the virus uh just those that already have illnesses and so we're just going to bring that before the lord we're also going to pray uh for opportunities as a church family, both here at Emmanuel and in Vernon and all across Canada, really, that uh, the Lord would give us opportunities to share the gospel. I think we're in a bit of a unique set of circumstances where sharing the gospel might look a little bit different, and so we're going to pray to that end. And finally, we're going to pray this morning for our doctors and for our nurses and frontline workers, uh, just in in the great... Uh, need that they have and for the great responsibility that they have and as well for our government and those that are in charge of making decisions we're going to lift all those things before the Lord Uh, but before I do that I'm going to read from scripture this morning we're going to read from Psalm 146 and just pointing to the goodness of who God is and our relationship with him and just remembering that our trust needs to be in him and who he is. Praise the Lord, praise the Lord, O my soul. I will praise the Lord as long as I live. I will sing praises to my God while I have my being. Put not your trust in princes, in a son of man, in whom there is no salvation. When his breath departs, he returns to the earth. On that very day, his plans perish. Blessed is he whose help is the God of Jacob, whose hope is in the Lord his God, who made heaven and earth, the sea, and all that is in them The Lord. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we're so thankful that you are a God who saves. We're so thankful that you are a God who provides. We want to recognize this morning that you are sovereign. Lord, you are in control of everything. You have a purpose and a plan behind everything, God, and in that we rest. We thank you for that. Lord, we pray for one another this morning. Lord, I pray for our church family here at Emmanuel. We pray, Lord, that they would be encouraged. We pray that they would be strengthened and built up, Lord, in who you are. We pray, Lord, that you would keep us safe uh, for physical safety, Lord. And Lord, too, we pray against um, just the the fear and the anxiety creeping in. And God, we also pray that you would just give us many opportunities to share the gospel. uh, And then days to come, uh, we realize that there may be A unique chance to do so and so we want to be sensitive to your leading god would we be obedient to your spirit's call in that way lord we too pray for the doctors and the nurses and frontline workers lord that you would just give them much wisdom and energy and strength as their job uh is maybe increasingly difficult in the days to come god we just pray that you would just give them much strength thank you so much for those nurses and doctors that are even part of our church family god And Lord, we too pray for the government. We just pray that uh, both here and in the states and across the world, that you would just give wise decisions to those that are in charge, Lord, and that you would give strength and energy. And Lord, I pray that in some way uh, our government uh, officials would be turned to you and to the goodness of the gospel. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.
1: Good morning, Emmanuel. It is good to be with you in a different sort of way this morning. And I hope as we gather together to worship the Lord that you will find a Bible, if you don't have one with you yet, that you just hit pause for a moment, grab one so that we can be in the Word together. As I mentioned, it is a a different morning. I've been made aware of it this week for a number of reasons. The first that maybe you've run into is I've had at least half a dozen younger people come to me and say, you know, has it been like this before? Have we had a a situation like this? Like, tell us about, you know, stories from the past. And it just sort of has been my reminder that I have now graduated into at least this phase of life called midlife, where people are looking at me as though I'm supposed to know things that have happened in the past. So I have definitely felt older. Um, But in all seriousness, really, it's been an interesting week for some other significant reasons the things that we're going through you no doubt have seen like I have the empty shelves the travel restrictions the market collapsing cancellations of flight you've seen the emergency room crowds start to fill up you've heard the news reports you've seen workplaces shutting down and it has created certainly questions and confusions and angst and of course even this morning as we are unable to gather as a church it's a part of what we've gone through this week as we prepare ourselves to respond to a crisis situation and thankfully in the middle of all that we have a God who is able to save and that's where we want to direct our thoughts this morning but before we do that in the book of Daniel I'm going to invite you to pray with me. Father we are grateful that you are a God whose arm is not too short to save and whose ear is never deaf to our cries for help. And so we're mindful this morning that as we gather in our homes, and as we worship you by coming to your word, expressing our confidence in you, Father, we do it not out of fear. We do it out of a sense of responsibility to care for those who are vulnerable. We do it out of a sense of responsibility to obey the officials in authority over us. But Father, it's not a fear that you have lacked capacity to care for us. Father, we are a people who have been redeemed from the fear of sin and death, and we thank you so much for that. And so even as we open your word today and in the days to come, would you fill us with the confidence that you are here, that our God is able to save. We thank you for that. Be with those on the front lines in these coming days. We think of our doctors and nurses and care workers, and Father, we ask that you would give them protection for their health, for just their strength, for their ability to endure increasingly heavy workloads. We pray for families that will face angst and illness, and would you just care for them through this? Father, we think of brothers and sisters around this world who are already in the middle of this crisis, and we pray for those churches that you would give them wisdom and grace in this time of need. And now, Father, as we open your word. Would you speak to our hearts? Would you allow us to see your goodness and your greatness this morning? In Christ's name, amen. Well, already it's a different sort of church service without the singing. And I hope as we go to God's word together, we will be able to do what Paul articulates in in Ephesians chapter 5 that we... We would sing and make music that it would come out of the fullness of our hearts. We might not be able to sing together as a church family, but we can certainly fill our hearts with praiseworthy thoughts and the confidence of who God is. And so I hope we'll be able to do that even as we open to the book of Daniel which is where we're this morning going to turn again and God in his providence has brought us to Daniel chapter 4 I believe for such a time as this which at first glance might seem like an unusual and even curious sort of thing after all what does the the story of a king essentially losing his mind becoming mad and like a beast what does that have to do with the situation that we're going through today well I hope as you'll stick with me over the next few minutes we'll be able to answer that question and more than just answer the question that that this that this chapter of scripture would minister to our hearts through this time. Now I remember as a kid I had this this chapter as one of my storybooks and I can still remember the picture of King Nebuchadnezzar sort of crippled over looking like an animal in a field. In some ways almost that reverse story of Beauty and the Beast instead of a a beast becoming this wonderful handsome looking prince we have a, a great and powerful king who will be crippled and diminished in his authority and his glory and become beast-like. But that's really getting ahead of ourselves. I want to back up a little bit into the story of Daniel yet again and remind you that that although we get these glimpses into Daniel's life, really through the book of Daniel, we'll get nine stories, nine events of Daniel's life. They take place over the course of 70 years. So, So never forget that most of Daniel's life is spent Waking up, eating breakfast, going to work, coming home, going back to sleep, hitting the repeat button on that. Day after day, week after week, month after month. When we arrive at Daniel 4, we're probably about the midlife point of his life. And, and even as we read through Daniel 2 and 3 and arrive in Daniel chapter 4, we realize in many ways by chapter 4, Daniel almost feels like a forgotten figure. Sort of relegated to, to a side role within Nebuchadnezzar's kingdom until God will again bring him back to a place of prominence and ministry in the life of Nebuchadnezzar. So just an encouragement to you, no matter how mundane and difficult and, and sometimes obscure you might feel you are, God can use you. You might wake up tomorrow morning and have a divine appointment that God has been preparing you for your whole life. Now when we open to Daniel 4, I want to make sure that we see something Very important and very clearly. And so I've got just a whiteboard. I want to make sure that we kind of outline the situation for ourselves. Because Daniel 4 is a little bit different than the rest of the book of Daniel. Daniel 4 is a letter composed by Nebuchadnezzar. And if you fail to see it, it's going to be hard to understand exactly how the book, or how this this particular part of the book functions. So I'm just going to outline it quickly. From chapter, chapter 4, 1 to 3, we have the decree of Nebuchadnezzar. Then from verse 4 until verse 18, we're going to hear about his dream. Then from verse 19 to 27, we're going to hear the interpretation of that dream. Then from 28 to 33, the fulfillment of the dream and its interpretation. And then finally from verse 34 until the end, which is verse 37. We have sort of the conclusion, and we have essentially the restoration of Nebuchadnezzar. And as you read through this chapter, I just want you to bear in mind that that what you're reading is this, this letter composed by Nebuchadnezzar that he begins this way. I'll read it for you. Nebuchadnezzar, sorry, King Nebuchadnezzar, to all peoples, nations, and languages that dwell in all the earth, peace be multiplied to you. It has seemed good to me to show you the signs and wonders that the Most High God has done for me. How great are his signs, how mighty his wonders, his kingdom is an everlasting kingdom, and his dominion endures from generation to generation. Now I'll stop there for a moment because this really is a puzzling sort of thing. We begin really at the end. We begin with with Nebuchadnezzar issuing a decree which is really the result of the conclusion of the story. And so if you were to read verse 34 to 37 and verse 1 to 3, you're going to discover that they're, they're very similar in content, which leads us to sort of have trouble putting the pieces together. What we need to understand is that what takes place between these two sections, this introduction, decree, and the conclusion, really becomes the, the reason, the fuel for why Nebuchadnezzar will decree what he will at the beginning of this letter. There's a few actual Bible translations. I've seen a couple out there that actually... that. That write this chapter in the form of a letter. I think that's a pretty helpful thing. A lot of us are going to be looking at a Bible that won't that won't sort of frame it that way, that won't kind of give it that that structure. But I, I want to just encourage you to think through it in that way, and I think it's going to help us out a lot. So we've got these pieces of this letter, and now we want to walk through it and see what it is that that Nebuchadnezzar writes and wants to decree to all peoples, nations, and languages concerning the God that he's come to know. Now it starts in verse 4 with the situation that Nebuchadnezzar finds himself in prior to this decree, prior to this chapter in his life. He says this, I, Nebuchadnezzar, was at ease in my house and prospering in my palace. I saw a dream that made me afraid. As I lay in bed, the fancies and the visions of my head alarmed me, so I made a decree that all the wise men of Babylon should be brought before me that they may, might, might make known to me the interpretation of the dream. Then the magicians, the enchanters, the Chaldeans, and the astrologers came in, and I told them the dream, but they could not make known to me its interpretation. At last, Daniel came in before me, who was named Belshazzar after the name of my God, and in whom is the spirit of the holy gods. And I told him the dream, saying, O Belshazzar, chief of magicians because I know that the spirit of the holy gods is in you and that no mystery is too difficult for you tell me the visions of my dream that I saw and their interpretation the visions of my head as I lay in bed were these I saw behold a tree in the midst of the earth its height was great the tree grew and became strong its top reached to heaven and it was visible to the ends of the whole earth its leaves were beautiful its fruit abundant and in it was food for all The beasts of the field found shade under it, and the birds of heaven lived in its branches, and all flesh was fed from it. I saw in the visions of my head as I lay in bed, and behold, a watcher, a holy one, came down from heaven. He proclaimed aloud and said, "'Chop down the tree and lob off its branches. "'Strip of its leaves and scatter its fruit. "'Let the beasts flee from under it and let the birds flee from its branches, but leave the stump of its roots in the earth.'" bound with a band of iron and bronze amid the tender grass of the field let it be wet sorry let him be wet with the dew of heaven let his portion be with the beasts in the grass of the earth let his mind be changed from a man's and let a beast's mind be given to him and let 7 periods of time pass over him the sentence is by the decree of the watchers the decision by the word of the holy one to the end that the living may know that the most high rules that the kingdom of men sorry, rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he will and sets it over the lowliest of men this dream i king nebuchadnezzar saw and you o belshazzar tell me the interpretation because all the wise men of my kingdom are not able to make known to me the interpretation but you are able for the spirit of the holy gods is in you now we've just seen essentially the the initial phase of the letter that nebuchadnezzar is going to write where he he describes the dream he's had. He describes the situation that unfolds. That he goes to all of his normal uh, wise men, the normal interpreters of his dreams, and they are unable to tell him what the dream means. But you remember Nebuchadnezzar is troubled by his dreams because in his 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 belief system, he understands that the gods are trying to communicate to him regarding future things through his dreams. As one person put it, I think quite quite well that the dreams for Nebuchadnezzar would have been like the shadow of things to come. And he's trying to understand what does this shadow mean? What are its implications? And I would just want to point out to you as well, as you read through that, that you're reading the the description of a king and his belief system and his understanding prior to his realization of who God is. And so even though we start out with this statement in verse one to three, that that it seems like Nebuchadnezzar has come to a point of understanding who the Lord is. We've now backtracked in time to the event that will lead him to that conclusion. And so you see these odd phrases where he uses the name Belshazzar because it's a name that reminds him of his gods. We find out that he he recognizes Daniel has a unique gift because of the the spirits of the gods that are upon him. You, you get that sense of the pluralness of, of Nebuchadnezzar's understanding of the gods of this world, not that singular God who is in control of all things. This is Nebuchadnezzar prior to this incredible realization, this incredible moment where God will humble him and allow him to see who the true living God is. So that's the situation. You can see the dream, read about it, this great tree that seems to be the source of life for for the world, essentially, almost sort of this cosmic scale that the whole world is nurtured and sustained by what this tree brings to them. But then we see this, this terrible point where the tree will be not just cut down. You see that, right? It will actually be cut down, dismantled, destroyed Again, Nebuchadnezzar is going to use the language of a watcher. And if that's unfamiliar to you, that would have been how the ancient people would have spoken of sort of angelic type beings. But remember, again, Nebuchadnezzar as at this point <coughs> where he has yet to come to understand who the true living God is. So he's using the language of his faith system to try to articulate this. And we find out Daniel is brought into this situation because no one else is able to help Nebuchadnezzar understand what's taking place. Finally, in verse 19, something, well, I'm going to suggest to you two unusual things take place. First, we're going to see Daniel's response. And the other unusual thing that I think is worth pointing out is that at this point in the letter, by verse 19 to verse 27, or even a little bit further... I guess almost down to verse 34. The letter turns from first person to third person. Uh, that's a, a curious feature. In fact, I think we're supposed to notice that. That's one of the reasons why we need to understand that this is a letter, so that when we reach that verse 19 and all of a sudden we start reading a third-person description, we're forced to ask ourselves, what's happened in this letter? What's happening to Nebuchadnezzar? Why would he go from this decree and start speaking of, I lay in bed and I'm a Nebuchadnezzar and I say this and I saw, to all of a sudden this description where he speaks of himself in a third person. There's been a, a wonderful description of what's taking place here. I want to read it to you. I think it's very helpful. To this, one can add that the switch from the first to third person occurs at what, in structural terms, is the midpoint, the turning point of this story. Up until this point, Nebuchadnezzar appears as the one who's in control, seemingly of the whole world, not just his life. The beginning of the interpretation signals by Daniel's reaction to the dream is the beginning of the demonstration that in reality, someone else, the Most High God, is in control of both the world and Nebuchadnezzar's fate. So at this point, Nebuchadnezzar essentially loses control of the narrative and hands it over to what appears to be almost an anonymous narrator. You get the point that this, this is trying to make, that, that structurally what we're seeing here is that, that Nebuchadnezzar is going to lose control of himself. He's going to become beast-like, and he, he illustrates that by showing us that he's no longer even able to speak in first person. He's lost that ability to even describe himself now from this point out. Verse 19, we pick up the story. Then Daniel, whose name was Belshazzar, was dismayed for a while. His thoughts alarmed him. The king answered and said, Belshazzar, let not, your, let not the dream or the interpretation alarm you. And Belshazzar answered and said, my lord, may the dream be for those who hate you and its interpretation for your enemies. It strikes me as as noteworthy, as commendable, that Daniel, even in the midst of an incredibly difficult situation, having been taken into exile, would at this point have anguish over the, the dream and its meaning for Nebuchadnezzar. He shows compassion. He doesn't want this calamity to fall upon Nebuchadnezzar, and even goes so far as to... to to pause before he will even actually tell Nebuchadnezzar what this dream means. I think there's something important for us that we would learn in our communication to people, even perhaps who have been difficult towards us, who have been the source of some of our anguish, that we would feel that same level of compassion. But Nebuchadnezzar is determined to find out the meaning of the dream. And so Daniel continues. Verse 20, The tree you saw which grew and became strong, so that its top reached to the heaven, and it was visible to the end of the whole earth, whose leaves were beautiful, its fruit abundant, in which was food for all, under which beasts of the field found shade, and, which, and in whose branches the birds of the heaven lived. It is you, O okay, king, who have grown and become strong. Your greatness has grown and reaches to the heaven. Your dominion to the ends of the earth. And because the king saw a watcher, a holy one, coming down from heaven and saying, Chop down the tree and destroy it, but leave the stump of its root in the earth, bound with a bound of iron and bronze in the tender grass of the field. Let him be wet with the dew of heaven. Let his portion be with the beast of the field, till seven periods of time pass over him. This is the interpretation, O king. It is a decree of the Most High, which has come upon the Lord, my king. That you should be driven from among men, that your dwelling shall be with the beasts of the field, that you shall be made to eat grass like an ox, that you would be wet with the dew of heaven, and seven periods of time shall pass over you, till you know that the Most High rules the kingdom of men, and gives it to whom he will. And as it was commanded to leave the stump of the roots of the tree, your kingdom shall be confirmed for you, from the time that you know that heaven rules." Therefore, O king, let my counsel be acceptable to you. Break off your sins by practicing righteousness and your iniquities by showing mercy to the oppressed, that there perhaps may be a lengthening of your prosperity. So there's the dream. There's its meaning. God has said enough. Nebuchadnezzar has refused to bend a knee to him. And you see two or three times in this section the message that God intends to convey. If you back up to verse 17, you'll see that God wants to... Have Nebuchadnezzar understand that the Most High rules the kingdom of of men. Sorry, again in verse 25, we come across the same statement that this will occur until You know that the Most High rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he will. Again, if we were to move down to verse 32, we see this repeated, that this is the conclusion, that this will occur and take place until you know that the Most High rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he will. You see, Nebuchadnezzar, in all of his understanding of God to this point, has failed to understand who the Most High God is. He has failed to yield before that God, to recognize that God. Now, Daniel encourages him to turn from his wickedness, that perhaps God would show him mercy. You see that near the end of that section in verse 26 and 27. But we find out in the next very next section in verse 28 that Nebuchadnezzar has not heeded that advice. In fact, we find out exactly 12 months later, verse 29, that Nebuchadnezzar was walking on the roof of his royal palace of Babylon. And the king answered and said, this is Nebuchadnezzar's words now of himself, Is this not great Babylon, which I have built by my mighty power as a royal residence and for the glory of my majesty? Now before we move on to the immediate result of that statement, let's just make sure we understand a little bit of the scale and the scope of, of the city that he's looking out over we know over the course of Nebuchadnezzar's life he He builds and lives in three different palaces. There is the first one that his father built that he renovated and lived in in the very early years of his life. There is a a final palace that he built that is a summer residence that's not completed until almost near the end of his life. But during the bulk of his lifetime, he lives in a palace that he has built in the city of Babylon. And he has built the city of Babylon around this palace as as a marker of his greatness. Perhaps you've heard of this city. It was actually named after a gate, the gate of God. In other words, Nebuchadnezzar seemed to be understanding that this was the place that allowed him to access God himself. The city was surrounded by immense walls. There were 14 miles on each side. The city was just of enormous magnitude. The, the wall in total around it was 56 miles long, was 300 feet high, 25 feet thick, with a secondary wall inside it that was another 75 feet tall. The wall, in order to have it extend to that great height, 300 feet above the ground, actually extended 35 feet below the surfaces. That's how deep the foundations ran. Around that 56 miles of wall were 250 towers, each 450 feet high. Around that was a giant moat that he had built to protect his city. Through the middle of the city, he had redirected the the Euphrates River so that it flowed through the middle of his city. It was crossed at three points, twice by ferries that would access the north and south part of the city. But in the middle, he had built a grand suspension bridge, 600 feet long, 30 feet wide, that also was apparently a, a drawbridge so it could be lifted up. He had massive gates, Accessing the city. A hundred brass gates around this city that could be closed off. Inside the city he had built 53 temples to his various gods. He had adorned them with immense wealth that he had collected from the nations he had conquered. He had built an image, a golden image to Baal. A, a solid, actually two solid gold lions and a, a solid gold human figure. Both all 18 feet tall. The other image, the other image he had made to the, the, uh, the idol Baal was said to have weighed over fifty thousand pounds of gold, and in the middle of it he had built himself his palace with the fame. Hanging gardens, which meant on that day when Nebuchadnezzar looked out over his city, he was looking at two of the seven wonders of the world. The first being the walls he built, the second being these hanging gardens that even to this day, people marvel over the complexity and the brilliance and the beauty of what he had accomplished. And he looked over his city that day and he said, I have built this for my glory. When people look at this, what they're supposed to walk away is that sense of how glorious and great I am. And I have done it with my mighty power. Now you remember what God was wanting Nebuchadnezzar to learn. That the most high reigns. That the most high is God. And he puts kings in place. He removes them from their place. But here we discover Nebuchadnezzar has not yet affirmed that truth. And so, the very next verse, we find this. Verse 31. While the words were still in the king's mouth, there fell a voice from heaven. O King Nebuchadnezzar, to you it is spoken. The kingdom has departed from you. You shall be driven from among men. Your dwelling shall be with the beasts of the field. You shall be made to eat grass like an ox. And seven periods of time shall pass over to you until you know that the Most High rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he will. Immediately the word was fulfilled against Nebuchadnezzar. He was driven from among men, ate grass like an ox. His body was wet with the dew of heaven till his hair grew as long as the eagle's feathers and his nails were like bird's claws. The judgment of God, the the message of the dream that had come back in verse 4 to 8, Nebuchadnezzar tells us through his letter, has now been fulfilled. He has been made little more than a beast of a field. Throughout other ancient writings, there are two or three Places in antiquity that seem to acknowledge that this period takes place in the life of Nebuchadnezzar. It's not spoken of with great detail. It would have been considered a shame to to write about a king in this way. But there seems to be a clear recognition that there is a historical period that matches up with the very thing that Daniel is telling us. Or essentially Nebuchadnezzar is telling us in the letter that he composes for all people, all nations, all languages. Nebuchadnezzar is brought to nothing. Now, we aren't exactly sure how long this period lasts. We're told it would go on for seven periods of time. We'll probably come back to that in a few weeks' time when we get a little bit farther on in the book because some of the similar language is going to show up. We're not sure if it's seven months or seven seasons of a year or seven years. Um, most of us would perhaps most naturally read it as a period of seven years, but we're not going to get too stuck on that. All we know is that is the the perfect amount of time, that's what's indicated in this number seven, that God has a, a perfect time for his judgment, a perfect amount of time that Nebuchadnezzar would come to the point where he would understand that God is the most high God. We find out in verse 34 that at the end of that period of time, at the end of the days, I, Nebuchadnezzar, lifted my eyes to heaven and my reason returned to me. And I blessed the Most High and praised and honored him, honored him who lives forever. For his dominion is an everlasting dominion. His kingdom endures from generation to generation. All the inhabitants of the earth are counted as nothing. And he does nothing according to his will. Or sorry, and he does according to his will among the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth. And none can stay his hand or say to him, what have you done? Now you can see here as this next section unfolds that we're back to this first person description. I, Nebuchadnezzar, lifted my eyes and he begins to speak again. His reason has been returned to him. He has been changed by what he's gone through. But he's able to speak now in that first person again and complete his letter. And as he completes his letter, he points to four things that he has come to realize about God. Number one, that he has come to realize that God is sovereign that he is most high, that his dominion is forever. He's also come to realize the creatureliness of mankind. In other words, we are not gods. We are dependent on God, but we are less than, even Nebuchadnezzar. The third thing he comes to learn as he he records in this letter, he's come to realize the truthfulness and righteousness of God. He goes on and he says this in verse 36, At the same time my reason returned to me, And for the glory of my kingdom, my majesty and splendor returned to me. My counselors and my Lord sought me. I was established in my kingdom, and still more greatness was added to me. Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and extol and honor the King of heaven. For all his works are right, his ways are just, and those who walk in pride he's able to humble. So you see there these last two things. He understands the truthfulness and the rightness of God. God does what's right. And he understands, lastly, that God resists the proud and gives grace to the humble. Now, we might be well served to take this story, this whole dream and the whole situation, and apply it something like this, that God is against pride. He is for the humble, And you can see that through the story in particular surrounding Nebuchadnezzar. You see at the heart of this story is this issue of of Nebuchadnezzar's desire to be great, desire to be glorified, desire to have people recognize him. And maybe we would do do well in applying some of that to our own hearts, understanding that the problems, the greatest problems of our world are not out there, they're, they're in here. It's our own pride. And even those of us who can't sit back and look out of our kingdom and say, look what I've done, perhaps... Perhaps we look and say, well, I've got nothing. I'm not proud. I have very little. My life is a a train wreck of failures and frustrations. But even then, don't make the mistake of thinking that pride cannot grab a hold of your heart. You see, you don't have to have a kingdom and palaces to to have pride. You You can simply have the desire somehow thinking that if only I had those things, that that becomes the God and the aim of your life. Yet Nebuchadnezzar teaches us so clearly the folly of that. That it is an empty pursuit and that God ultimately will frustrate that pursuit. It's interesting as you see the end of Nebuchadnezzar's letter. In verse 32 as he gets to the end he talks about the need to learn that the most high rules. That there is an intellectual piece, there is a knowledge piece To this, But it doesn't just stop at a knowledge intellectual level for Nebuchadnezzar. As you get into the the last few verses, verse 34, you see him praise and honor him who lives forever. I love this quote. It says this. He didn't just learn it in his head. He felt it in his heart. The only person who does justice to the sovereignty of God is the person who sings about it. Watch out for the person who wants to talk about the sovereignty of God but has no song in his heart. The biblical opposite of pride is not pondering the sovereignty of God, but praising the sovereignty of God, delighting in it and resting on it. For Nebuchadnezzar, it will be a hard lesson learned. It will be being brought low to learn the folly of pride. And throughout the rest of Scripture, we see a similar sort of thing. It takes the the prodigal son Arriving at a point where his friends are gone, his money is gone, and he sits in a pigsty before he realizes the wisdom of returning to his father. It's not comfort and ease through which we come to know the Lord. It's so often through pain and trial. But if we just ended the message there, If we said, there's the story of Nebuchadnezzar, there's a lesson about pride and humility, we would only be, I would suggest to you, about a quarter of the way there in our application and understanding of this story. In other words, we would just be at the beginning point. And so what is it that Daniel chapter 4 is included in this book? What is the purpose behind this? Now to answer that question, I need you to remember why we have the book of Daniel in the first place. The book of Daniel is written to a a group of exiled people living in a foreign nation who feel forsaken, overwhelmed, forgotten. Their own words as they describe this in places like Psalm 137, by the rivers of Babylon we sat and wept when we remembered Zion. They go on and they say in verse 7, remember Lord what the Edomites did on the day that Jerusalem fell, and they cried, tear it down. Isaiah 49, verse 14, uses this description of these same people in exile. Zion has said, that's God's people, the Lord has forsaken me, the Lord has forgotten me. You see, Daniel is a book written to a forgotten, forsaken people. They're not a group of prideful people. They're not a group of people who need the lesson of Daniel chapter 4 because they have kingdoms and wealth and palaces and walls and fame and glory and splendor and God needs to humble them. There are people who have lost all of that. Who are now living a whole generation essentially into a time where they feel forgotten and abandoned and alone. And you see the same message of Daniel 4 that for Nebuchadnezzar will humble him, is a message that needs to be applied to this same people to bring them hope. You see, when you go back to verse 17 and you read that same statement through that lens, think of how this applies that you may know that the Most High rules the kingdom of men. You see, this group of people were at the, the danger point of forgetting that their God ruled that their God's arm was not too short. We had we that expression, the long arm of the law. In other words, we mean by that you're, you're not outside the, the authority and the realm and the, the ability of the law to bring order and justice. In Isaiah 59, 1, we find out that the arm of the Lord is not too short to save and his ear is not dull to our cries for help. This people in Daniel, they were at the precipice of forgetting that. And God would now take the king of this great nation and bring him to nothing to demonstrate and teach his people that the Most High God is still in control. Now, I want to take you quickly to the book of Isaiah to try to apply this lesson, both in terms of how I think it applied to the people in Daniel's day, and I think in terms of how we want to apply it today. Because in Isaiah we find a message given through a prophet that God had appointed. Who would speak before this time of exile. But would speak a message that was designed For the people in exile. In other words, God had sent a prophet ahead of time, delivered a message, had it written down and recorded so that a hundred years later, when this people like Daniel and Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and the countless others were in Babylon, they would have this message from God to encourage and instruct their hearts. In fact, if you go to places like Isaiah 40, you're going to come across this resounding message comfort. Comfort my people, says the Lord. Isaiah 51, Isaiah 52. The, the message of that last part of Isaiah is this message of God coming along and saying, I want to bring you a message of comfort. How do you comfort a people who are discouraged and fearful, who feel abandoned and forgotten? In the middle of that, God brings a message in Isaiah chapter 41 that I, speak, I think speaks to that situation. In fact, one of the one of my favorite chapters the Old Testament, in verse ten, God delivers this message. Isaiah forty-one ten, fear not, for I am with you. Be not dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you. I will help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. Now I hope you, I hope you'll turn there in your Bibles to Isaiah forty-one ten at some point today, and that you'd see the the five things that God communicates to his people as essentially an antidote, as, a, as a, a way to respond to our fear. He says, firstly, I want you to know that I am with you. Fear not, I am with you. I'm with you in Babylon. I'm with you in Vernon. I'm with you in Vancouver. I'm with you wherever you are around this globe. I'm with the family of Emmanuel who are, who are traveling right now, trying to get back home. I am with you. Secondly, he says, I am your God. I've not ceased to be your God. Thirdly, I will strengthen you. I can provide the strength that you don't have within yourselves. I am a God who is able to do that. Fourthly, I will help you. That well-timed, perfectly timed help when we face trouble. Lastly, he says, I can uphold you with my righteous right hand. In other words, my hand is not weak, my arm is not short. Now in the rest of the book of Isaiah, or at least Isaiah chapter 41, we find four things about God, four glimpses into his character that Isaiah wants us to see that I think fuel our confidence in that verse. We'll move quickly through them just because we don't have a ton of time to unpack the whole chapter. But if you were go back to verse 1, you would find this statement. Coastlands, listen to me in silence. Let the peoples renew their strength. Let them approach. Let them speak. Let us draw near for judgment. In other words, the first thing Isaiah says I want you to see about God is God is the judge of all the earth. The Nebuchadnezzars in their palaces are not stronger than or outside the realm of God. God is able to do that. He's able to speak a dream to a king and bring it to fulfillment, to bring about a judgment, to cause a change in this man's heart. And his judgment is not limited. There is no nation, there is no plot mark on the map where God is not involved. Second thing Isaiah 41 wants us to see, verse 2 and 3 is that God is the ruler of all rulers. Remember the message that Nebuchadnezzar needed to hear and learn? He is not the top of the heap. God is the Most High. And Isaiah 41 says it this way, Who stirred up one from the east, whom victory meets at every step? He gives up nations before him so that he tramples kings underfoot. He makes them like dust with his sword, like driven stubble with his bow. He pursues them and passes on safely by paths his feet have not trod. In other words, God's saying what takes place in this world when you see kingdoms rise and kingdoms fall, that's all me. I am the ruler of rulers. The third thing Isaiah points to in verse 4 of chapter 41 is this. Who has performed and done this, calling generations from the beginning? I, the Lord, the first and with the last, I am he. In other words, God is saying, I want you to understand that I am the creator God. There was nothing before me. There will be nothing after me. I spoke nations into existence. I've accomplished all this. I don't just judge the nations. I don't just rule the nations. But I called them forth from the beginning. The fourth thing, God has chosen a people. Listen to how he says it in verse 5 to 7. The coastlands have seen and are afraid the ends of the earth tremble. They've drawn near and come, and everyone helps his neighbor and says to his brother, Be strong. The craftsman strengthens the goldsmith, and he who smooths with the hammer, him who strikes the anvil, saying of the soldering, It's good. And they strengthen it with the nails so that it cannot be moved. But you, Israel, my servant, Jacob, whom I have chosen, the offspring of Abraham, my friends." You I took from the ends of the earth. And I called from its furthest corners and I said, You are my servant. I have chosen you and I have not cast you off. Isaiah says, I want you to know who this God is. The judge of the world. The ruler of rulers. The creator of all things. And the caller of a people who has chosen his people out of the nations. Freely and graciously. And he says to that people next fear not, I am with you. The God who is with you is the God who is judge of all the earth, God who is the ruler of rulers, the God who is the originator of all things, and the God who has chosen you, handpicked you. I am with you. You see, the God who is with you and, and is for you and who will strengthen you has that ability. He is over all things. I believe that's why Jesus was so So confident and so quick to be able to turn to his followers and say, let not your hearts be troubled. Trust in God. You see, God is the same God of Isaiah 41. The same God who is with you and for you, who strengthens you, who helps you, and who upholds you. The same God who brought a king low to show his people that they were not forgotten, that they were not abandoned, that they were never forsaken is the same God we have today. Emmanuel, we don't know what the future holds. These are uncommon days. But you see, we didn't know what the future would hold six months ago either. Long before we had ever heard of a coronavirus, our God was on a throne. Today, in the midst of anxious days, our God is still on the throne. Our God is the ruler of not just kings and not just the seasons. Our God is the ruler of viruses. He's the ruler of workplaces. He's the ruler in your home this morning. Let not your heart be troubled. Trust in this God. Depend on this God. Turn to this God who has not forsaken you. Instead, he will be with you and is with you even now. He will strengthen you and is strengthening you I believe even now he will help you and is helping you even now and he will uphold you and he's doing it even now. And we might not know all that the future holds, but we know the one who is in control of that future, who is the judge of this world, who is the ruler of kings and who has called the people us through his son, Jesus Christ, and he will be for us and with us. Let me pray for you. Father, we thank you that we can have immense confidence in who you are. Thank you that your word has made it plain to us. That you don't leave us scrambling in the dark, wondering who you are and where you are and whether you are strong enough to save us. But Father, you announce it clearly and boldly. Father, we again want to fix our eyes on the gospel news. This incredible message that sin and death have been defeated. We thank you and we praise you. And in these troubled times, would you allow us as a church to be a community of faith that trusts in you, that that while we may not gather in one room to sing and praise you, there would be a praise in our hearts knowing that you are good and in control that would allow us to spread good news and hope of Christ in our community. So Father, give us courage. Give us boldness to be able to do that. And Father, we are thankful that we need not know all that the future holds because we have confidence in one who controls it all. Thank you for showing us that in Daniel chapter 4 this morning. Father, if any of us are struggling with pride, we would want to be men and women who would turn our eyes to you and acknowledge that you are the Most High God, that we are not. But Father, if any of us are struggling with those feelings of fear and forsakenness, we would want to learn that same truth, that you are the Most High God, that you are with us, that you have not abandoned us. And so we thank you and praise you. Would you do that miraculous work among us this morning, we pray. In Christ's name, amen.